Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. Today's guest is, as you read, Yaron Brooke. But first, but first, but first, but first, can I ask you a favor? We have been soaring in the charts globally. Singapore, Philippines, South Africa, Slovakia, of course, the good old U.S. of A. China even pops up in the charts. If you're there, we'd love to hear from you. And the best way you can support the show in your country is this dropping a five-star review. It helps more people in your country catch the show and here in the U.S. as well. Same thing, five-star review. Take two seconds to do it. With that being said, let's get to our guest, who is Jerron Brook. He is the chairman of the board for the Ayn Rand Institute. He also has a show called The Jerron Brook Show, which airs live on YouTube and Spreaker. His most recent book, which I'll link to in the show notes, is In Pursuit of Wealth, The Moral Case for finance. With that being said, let's get to my time with Yaron. Yaron, welcome to the War Room. Oh, thanks for having me on. Okay, so let's get right into it. Um, I haven't had on uh, a Randian. I guess, would you consider yourself a Randian first? Let me ask you that question. Well, yes, but I don't I don't call it Randian. Uh, you know, I had a particular philosophy. She called it objectivism, so I call myself an objectivist. Um, I, you know, Randian is, is a bit too, um, I don't know, too much focused on her rather than her <laughs> ideas. Okay. Okay. So you're objective. So maybe yeah. unpack what that is and how that fits into the larger, um, economic and philosophic and political landscape. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, objectivism is Ayn Rand's philosophy. It's, it's a philosophy she articulated in such books as, uh, The Fontenelle and Alice Shrugged and then. Uh, those are fiction books and, and then nonfiction books like uh, Virtue of Selfishness, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, Philosophy Who Needs It, and, and many others. Uh, so uh, generally, I, I encourage people to read Rand at the source. I, I think they'll discover a whole worldview that is uh, this quite exciting and uh, stimulating. Uh, it, it's a worldview that basically takes the perspective that um, you know, reality is what it is. It's not what we wish it to be. It's not what some consciousness out there makes it. It's not what society decides. Things are what they are. Um, and that we as individuals have uh, the tool to discover that reality, and that is reason. Uh, so reason is our means of knowledge, not revelation, and not uh, emotion, not whim, and not other people, not society again. It's our own individual reason. Only individuals can reason, only individuals can think. So her ethics are individualistic. That is the purpose of life is your own life, happiness, uh, you know, flourishing. And you do that by living a life of, uh, of, of reason, of, of thinking, of using your mind to choose your values and to pursue your goals and to, to achieve. And, uh, you know, so she's an advocate of making the most of your life and living a great life and not, not, you know, not just giving in to mediocrity. Uh, and the only political system that leaves us free to uh, to pursue our own goals, our own happiness, our own life, to, to make the most of our life, the only political system that makes any of that possible is capitalism. Uh, so if you, she views capitalism not just as an economic system, but a political system, uh, a social system, a system where the role of government is to protect individual rights, and that's it. Complete separation of state from economics, complete separation of state from education, complete separation of state from science, uh, complete separation of state from religion and from ideas generally. 
Uh, the state is there to protect your right to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness, and that's it. And that means protecting you from crooks and criminals and fraudsters and terrorists and foreign invaders and helping to arbitrate disputes and leaving us free, leaving us alone. So it's a hands-off kind of political philosophy. So very much akin to kind of a uh, libertarian, um, a modern libertarian uh, ideal. Uh, there should be some differences between so, libertarians, depending on how far libertarian quote you go. So if you're an anarcho-capitalist, this would be, um, that would go further than, than what Rand just described there, correct? Well, you see, I don't think anarcho-capitalism goes further. I think it goes backwards. So oh, Okay. Um, well, that's, I, <laughs> you could also think, argue that as well from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think anarcho-capitalism is, is, uh, is, first of all, a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing because uh, capitalism requires government uh, as the agency the protection of individual rights. Uh, so you can't have both anarchy and capitalism at the same time. I think anarchy is uh, is a is a very uncivilized state of being. So it takes us backwards uh, to uh, to a periods in history that are dark and bloody and unpleasant. Uh, so uh, I, I think government is certainly uh, the government we have today is one I reject completely. But government per se is a necessary good, not a necessary evil. It just needs to be limited by the appropriate principle, and the appropriate principle is individual rights. And, and as a consequence, I, try, I don't call myself a libertarian because libertarianism is this big tent that has a lot of different people, right? It has, I don't know, Republicans who are, are big advocates of preserving Social Security and Medicare, but they call themselves libertarians, which is bizarre, and all the way to anarchists who, uh, you know, don't want any government and 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 want a free fall. Where I think I think it's a disaster, and I think that's ultimately leads to the worst kind of statism. Um, so I call myself an objectivist. It's, I think it's a unique position. It's a unique point of view. Um, and, uh, and it's, but it's certainly uh, laissez-faire capitalist and, and free market in its political yeah. ideology. Yeah. Okay. So I I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so I would say that I used to be a conservative. Um, you know, I grew up in the South Republicans, you know, uh, and then kind of, uh, conservatism kind of came the buzzword and then i don't remember when it was but um i'm sure i probably said different things at different times but within the last decade if not further i started questioning really the discussions that was that were being had by the republicans and so that would be like useless and like a hannity or a limbaugh and i started I, I could just kind of hear them getting challenged on things or them contradicting things they'd said and, and i realized they were more trying to win the race than actually die on the heel for what matters now Everything that we believe on, believe you can't die on the hill for everything, obviously. But, but essentially, they were going to promote, and I can't remember which race it was, but they were going to promote Rudy Giuliani over um, a more conservative candidate. And I realized, oh, they just want to win the, the election. Well, I remember, I remember when Rush Limbaugh admitted that he said this is during Trump because he had to support Trump, right? Mm -hmm. So he admitted that he doesn't really believe government deficits matter. Mm -hmm. And that the only reason he for years and years and years advocated against government deficits was because the Democrats were running them. Right. So he admitted to basically having a position for political reasons, not mm -hmm. because he believed it or anything else. Um, so. So, yes, I, I think conservatism is filled with contradiction. I think ultimately um, I don't think the founding fathers even would consider themselves uh, uh, conservatives and they were radicals, right? I mean, they were revolutionaries. They were cutting edge 
um, at the right. time. And so in a sense, they were the progressives of their era uh, in a in sense of progress, not in a sense of what the progressives became. Um, and uh, I, I, I think I think conservatism ultimately needs to be rejected. The question is, for what? And it, it, one of the challenges with libertarianism, this is another just point of difference between objectivism and libertarianism. Libertarianism is agnostic when it comes to philosophy. So it doesn't care where you get your values from. It doesn't care what your moral stances, your moral code is, your moral views is. As long as you're for, quote, liberty and freedom, defined, eh, we don't want to we don't want to spend too much time on definitions, they will tell you, then it's okay. Whereas objectivism says, look, if you don't get the ethics right, and if you don't get the epistemology, a theory of knowledge right, you're not going to get politics right. So politics rests on an ethical view and it rests. So it's not true that just anything goes. It's not true that everybody is in the big tent. We need a tent of people who get the ethics right. And the ethics in objectivism are new and different. They're a rejection of, if you will, the Judeo-Christian ethics. It's an alternative to Judeo-Christian ethics. And as such is a new presentation, a new foundation for the kind of ideas of liberty and freedom. Yeah, so... Um... Couple of things there. To your point, yeah, I think my aha moment that started awakening me was was Hannity was debating. Um, this has been years ago. He was debating yeah. some Democrat strategists, and Hannity's like, "Your candidate had an affair, and he's running, and da da da, and he's never apologized." And the Democrat strategist goes, "This is you know a long time ago, but something to the effect of." My candidate is not running on family values. However, you support Bob over here, and he yeah. is, and he's running on Democrat values. And Hannity goes, the Democrats said, so what do you say to that? And Hannity goes, this is my show. I ask the questions. And I realized, <laughs> oh, oh, this is all a joke. Like, this is not real. It's entertainment. It's not entertainment. real. And, and yeah. so one yeah. of the things moving forward that I, I had Lauren Southern on the other day, and I said, what is it that conservatives are actually trying to conserve? What I don't actually know because when you bring in um, Trump relative to the rhetoric around the Republican party before Trump, you would say, well, how Trump acts is not appropriate. I was, the Republicans were very critical of how Obama acted when he was in office. He didn't put a suit on to go to the white house. And, and so I think that we're kind of in this moment to where and you're talking about the, these ethics. I think that one of the problems with libertarianism is obviously um, to your point that you, you know, why is it? The fundamental question is, why is the non-aggression principle the right way to think about things? Why yep. is anything the right way to think about things? And so it's a it's a question that society, I, I think some days we're not think we're not grappling with it at all. And other days I go, maybe people are starting to grapple with the ethics of politics, whether the Republican, Democrat, objectivist, libertarian. What's your thought on that? Do you think we're actually trying to think through on some level as a as a society why it is? the way that we're governed, the way that we are. No, unfortunately, there's not a lot of thinking going on in American politics today at all. Uh, you know, the American politics has become more and more mindless uh, over time. And I think Trump was was the best kind of illustration of that. And the, and the blind support for Trump, I think, is a good, a good indication of that. But look, Rand really thought this through. Rand really presents a political system based on an ethical system. So she has the answer of why the non-aggression principle is... is uh, is the right principle, right? So she doesn't start with the non-aggression principle as the libertarians do, and they just pull it out of thin air, right? And then they say, well, it's obvious that we should not aggress against one another, but almost every political theory in human history has said, yeah, it's okay to aggress against other people if what you're trying to do is is a good thing, if it's just, if it's, if it's quote, moral, 
Rand says there's a reason why we shouldn't aggress towards other people, and that is because morally, your life is yours, therefore their life is theirs. Each one of us, uh, you know, their life is their own, and their own um, moral purpose is the pursuit of their own happiness. And then she says the thing that the way in which we achieve happiness, the way in which we pursue our goals, the way to attain happiness is by using reason. And the enemy of reason is force. The fact is that I've put a gun to your head. Um, you do what I tell you. Your reason is, is, is irrelevant. It's gone. It doesn't matter. And therefore, you can't pursue happiness. You can't pursue your values. You can't do what's good for you. You can't even think about what's good for you. All you think about is, how do I appease your arms so he doesn't shoot me? Right? Or how do I escape? Right? But force limits the scope of our minds. It limits the scope of our thinking. So the non-aggression principle recognizes that in order to free human reason to discover the appropriate goals that we need in order to live, the appropriate values and virtues, and to pursue those goals, we need to eliminate force from society. And, and only by eliminating force from society do we free the individual to pursue his own happiness. So it's based on a moral perspective, the perspective of the morality of egoism, the morality of your right, your your uh, um, purpose of, of, of pursuing happiness as your moral goal. Right, but you said that earlier, um, Rand uh, rejects uh, the Judeo-Christian morality, and one of the problems yeah. you would say to whatever you're, you're, you're going to I'm not sure. Is she an atheist? I don't know. The, is she an atheist? Yes. Okay. So the question that you'd have to ask the atheist is, no matter what their position is, whether how much we agree with it is, on what moral authority are you making any of these claims? And so the the problem that you laid out with the guy with the gun, pointing at the other guy, well, the guy with the gun could be quite happy that he's doing this. And so what justification can either side give from an atheistic perspective that they are they're reasoning correctly and their morals are, are correctly oriented? Sure, that's a good question, but I will point out that um, having a God does not solve that problem for you, because um, did God tell you not to point the gun? God sometimes tells you to point guns at certain people and not at other people, and uh, what's the logic God uses? Well, according to the book of Job, it's not for you to ask, just follow orders. That is a very dangerous moral code, just follow orders, because the spokesman for God, because he doesn't speak to you directly— the spokesmen for God often have other motives. Um, religious morality has been used to, 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 to justify some of the worst horrors in all of human history. And of course, depending on your religion, depending on the particular God or in the particular book where he talks to people, you get different instructions about how to what to do. So all you're doing really by claiming that the authority is God is claiming the authority is whatever you feel like it. Right, whatever denomination you have to belong to, whatever religion you choose to belong to, it's a complete subjectivist morality. There is no objectivity to uh, a a moral code based on a being that is not in direct observable communication with us. How does Rand justify her morality? Well, she asks the question: Why do we need morality? Well, we need morality because we're not born with the instincts. We're not born with the knowledge of how to live. Um, we, we don't have, like animals, they know exactly what to do. Uh, you can't say an animal's evil or an animal's good, right? It's just, it's just, it's coded and it's just pursuing its code. Human beings have free will. 
Human beings write their own code. We are self-programming being. That's what makes us different than all the other animals out there. So we actually need a code of ethics to tell us what to pursue and what not to pursue. Now, what is, how do we decide what is good and what is bad? Well, the fundamental choice that all human beings have, that all living beings have, is the choice between life or death, being or not being, existing or going out of existence. Um, and we don't know how to be. We don't know how to exist. We don't have that coded in us again. So morality is, should be, the tool to provide us with knowledge to pursue life, to pursue existence, to pursue flourishing, to pursue success. Now, you might say, well, that could be anything, you know, pointing a gun at somebody. Now, I would argue that it's objective, just like in nutrition, for example, right? Certain things are poison. And certain things, let's assume nutrition was a developed science, certain things are good for you, and certain things are bad for you. We certainly know that certain things are bad for you, poisons are bad for you. I would say the same in the spiritual realm, the same in the realm of human action. Certain virtues, certain actions that you take are good for you. Certain actions that you take are bad for you. Now, how do we know that? History, observation, introspection. We, we, when we're children, we test stuff out and we discover that some things hurt and some things don't. Some things get us in trouble and some things don't. So we learn from reality. And if you look at reality, if you look at human history, the one area that has had the best results, if you will, the one area where we have produced the most amazing values, whether they're artistic values, whether they are material values, uh, is the realm of reason. When we use our minds, good things happen. You know, how many times do you get in trouble and you almost never say, I thought about it too much. <laughs> it's almost always I, I acted before I gave it any thought. I followed my emotions. I didn't think enough about it. So Rand's argument is that our tools for survival, our tools for being, for existing is our mind. When we subvert our mind, we subvert existence. Pulling out a gun and pointing it at somebody else, you're subverting your own mind. You're admitting to yourself that you cannot cope with reality by the use of your own mind and by the use of reason, and you need to revert to the animalistic way of surviving, which is force. And of course, the only way you can survive by pulling a gun on somebody else is assuming that they have used their mind to produce, because you can't produce anything with force. Think about agriculture or even hunting. Even hunting requires the use of the mind. You use a gun, you use a bow and arrow, products of the human mind, not products of force. So everything of value to human beings is a product ultimately of human reasoning. Therefore, reason is the ultimate virtue. And force, which is the enemy of reason, is the ultimate vice. Okay, I want to go back to this uh, for half a second. Sure. You said that uh, religion is the is one of the largest um, committers of atrocities. And it's, it's interesting because um, I, I do hear this quite often, and I'm, I'm you know, from the left, I, I expect it, uh, but for the the right or from, you know, objectivists or libertarians, sure. I would sure. expect that not to be played because the largest killer of the last hundred years, which probably killed more people than any other regimes in history, is communist fascist regimes that are sure. very much atheistic in their mind, in their mindset, and they've killed 
hundreds of millions of people. Well, I would imagine that prior to that, the world's population could not sustain that death level. So therefore, yeah. they are the, the so communism, fascism. Those are the largest killers in the in the in the, in the greatest uh, portrayers of human atrocity ever. And so, why is it when we look at these issues? Um, we don't go to that as the default. We go sure. to ah, religion. It's a bad stuff. Sure. Okay. That's fine. But, but relatively speaking, two reasons, margin. two reasons. One is if, if you take away the absolute numbers, but you look as the percentage human population, um, the wars between Protestants and Catholics killed more people than communism or fascism. Just, just if you go back and you look at the 30 year war, the percentage of the European population that they slaughtered in the name of Catholicism versus Protestantism, is staggering, just staggering. And 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 uh, and then if you look at Islam's history, if you look at the history of Islam and the number of people again as a percentage of the population that Islam has killed over its history, uh, it is again uh, staggering. If and then if you look at the Old Testament, uh, you know I'm I'm originally from Israel, so my roots are in 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 uh, in Judaism. Um, if you look at the Old Testament, God tells the Jews to slaughter people left and right. I mean, for no reason, no reason that he is willing to articulate. I'm sure he had his reason, supposedly. But um, uh, slaughter is part of the way you proceed in life. There's no prohibition on violence if it's guided by the word of God. Now, who gets to decide what the word of God is, right, is, is my issue. Now, let's go to fascism and communism. Is fascism? atheistic i don't think the nazis would agree with that i think the nazis very much consider themselves part of a judo-christian tradition they were they were not judo obviously because they hated the jews right but certainly christians uh they use christian symbols they they talk about christianity they talk about the 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 you know past as christians so i'm not convinced they are but what certainly they are is mystics they believe in mysticism they, they reject reason. Uh, their biggest enemy intellectually, philosophically, was human reason. So it's not that I am an atheist and I love all atheists. No, I disagree with almost all atheists. I'm a particular kind of atheist. I'm an atheist that advocates for reason, for reason as man's basic means of survival, for reason as man's guide to knowledge and, and guide to morality and guide to, to... Now the communists, take the communists. They were explicit rejection, rejectors of God. But all the communists do, if you look at Marx, is they replace God with the proletarian. And they replace the Lenin and Stalin for the Pope, right? Somebody has to commune with the spirits of the proletarian to know what's good for the proletarian. Um, somebody has to sacrifice one group to another, just like in Christianity, we sacrifice to God. Here we sacrifice to the proletarian. What all these ideas, uh, religion, all the religions, really, all the major religions, and and communism and fascism, all have in common, is they're all collectivistic ideologies. They all reject fundamentally the sanctity of the individual, the idea of the individual living for himself, using his own mind in pursuit of his own values. For all of them, there is some other entity that you're supposed to sacrifice to. There's some. Your life doesn't matter if it's a sacrifice to God or if it's a sacrifice to the proletarian. Or if it's a sacrifice to the Aryan race or to the state, that's nationalism, to the state, sacrifice people to the state. I'm saying, no, I don't want to sacrifice to anybody. My life is mine. I get to choose my values. I get to choose where to invest my time. 
I get to choose what to do with my money. I, my life is mine. You don't get to take it because your God demands it or because the state demands it or because the proletarian demands it. So the real fundamental difference here is individualism versus collectivism. And on the side of collectivism, for the most part, there, there are exceptions. You get religion, fascism, communism, socialism, all the isms with a few exceptions. Okay, so let's take that into broader kind of economics, this kind of sure. two things, right? So today you would say, uh, not you, but but, but we, we hear, well, 80 million people voted for Joe Biden, so therefore we should kind of push down his agenda, which is very much a collectivistic sure. mindset, right? Sure. Um, but at some level, no matter where we're at, I think we do have to question, at some point, does a certain majority have something to say on an issue? And so if we can't poll the world, but if the world, for instance, could say we could poll them and 99.9% .9 of the world agreed on said issue um, and they wanted to do something a certain way, should that, the right of the one, less than 1% in this case, overrule the 99.9? .9? And so how do we balance out these discussions and debates over, because um, you're, you're saying, hey, I, I don't want to sacrifice, I don't do this stuff. Well, yeah. is there a certain point to where, yeah, you kind of have to because not not be forced to, but but ethically have to? No, absolutely not. Majorities, majority of the world believe the world was flat. Uh, a majority of the world today probably believes in some form of socialism, from some form of statism. Uh, a majority of Germans thought that Jews should all be killed. Uh, it, majorities do not dictate rights, truth, justice, or anything else. Um, the right and life of the individual is sacrosanct, uh, and, and, and you should not be able to overrided by majorities. I'm not, I don't believe in democracy in that sense, right? I believe we should vote for our representatives, but our representatives should be impotent to violate my rights. That is, Congress should not be able to vote to take my money. Congress should not be able to vote to take my time. Congress should not be able to vote to take my life. The only job of Congress is to vote, to put in place the laws necessary to protect my life, my time, my money, not to take it. So the whole job of government and is is to protect and therefore uh, you know this country was founded as a republic constitutional republic a constitution that was there to protect the individual from whom the majority right so what we the reason we have the political system the better aspect of the political system we have today is that we don't believe that it's okay to violate the rights of the individual in the name of the majority now we do today because we have this mixed system where we recognize rights a little bit, but not too much. But I reject the system we have today. I, I believe in in real capitalism, in in other words, in real protection of individual rights. And, and so as I'm hearing you say this, obviously I agree from a libertarian perspective, a lot of this, but sure. but, but but the question could be raised, okay, hey, you said protect you, your, your, your time, your money, and your well-being. Um, but if a foreign army is invading, Perhaps they need more money. They need more people to protect you from that. So they can't ever conscript an army to go and fight in the foreign ever. How ever. would they then protect? How then would they protect you? Volunteer army in a country that can't raise a volunteer army to defend itself shouldn't exist. It doesn't have them all right to exist. Like I, I come from Israel, tiny little country. It has a draft. I served in the Israeli military three years, right? Um, I reject the draft, even for a tiny little country surrounded by enemies. Because if Israel can't raise a volunteer army to defend itself, then Israel doesn't deserve, in a sense, to exist because the people in Israel are not willing to defend what it represents. So I have to force them to defend it. I mean, that's ridiculous. So I believe that if you can't raise the money, 
voluntarily. If you can't raise the troops voluntarily, then you have no right to go to war. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, more of what we kind of have in the U.S. today, which is more of a volunteer. Well, we don't have volunteer funding of the army. I no, would no, like no, to yeah, not, not the funding. I'm talking about just the just the yeah. volunteer aspect. So you can Absolutely. look at the U.S. military and say, hey, funding aside, we could never – no one would ever pay for all this stuff. <laughs> but there's at least people willing to serve. No, I, I'm convinced people would pay for this stuff. That is, I would pay. If you took my taxes down to zero and said, okay, Iran, would you pay for the military? Absolutely. Here's, I don't know, 5 10% of my income for the military. Would you pay for the police? Absolutely. I want police. Here's another little bit for the police. Would you pay for uh, 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 um, courts? Yes. Here's a little bit. Would you pay for welfare? Nah. Government shouldn't <laughs> do that. Would you pay for all the regulatory agencies, the CDC, the SEC? No, I'm not a dime of my money are you getting for that. So if, you, if, if, if we made it voluntary, then we would pay for the things we value. And what do we value from the government? I value stuff from my from the Walmart and from my and from the gas station down the road. But what do I value from the government? The only thing I value from the government is a dispute arbitration and uh, and uh, protection and and protecting my rights. That's it. So I'll pay for the just I, I'll pay for the, the the court system. I'll pay for the judiciary. I'll pay for the military and the police. And that's it. I'm not paying for anything else. So. I think let's unpack that that paying for a second there. What uh, do we talk about socialism? And I, I don't think practically you talk about conservatives earlier paying for you know uh, uh, social security and this not this this stuff. I, yeah. I don't think we have a real discussion over. We're not obviously a true socialist nation, but how much is being stolen from the average American? And it's a little bit frustrating when I hear about these these terms called crony capitalism. It's like well. It was crony. Is that the capitalism? It's this whatever this thing is we have today. That's what's crony because you're funding all of this stuff by printing money. Put it in the paycheck of people. I heard someone say this one time. Just put it in the paycheck. Like, hey, we're gonna spend you know a hundred dollars to go fight this war. A yeah. uh, hundred dollars to do this. And people go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> oh no, I'm voting your butt out of office. But we kind of have this cloak and dagger system that I, I really don't think most Americans understand. We don't have the time really understand and stop and go, wow, we're being, I mean, our, our pockets are robbed daily. The, ch the challenge is, though, that when you poll Americans and you ask them, would you be willing to eliminate Social Security? Overwhelming majority says no. And then you ask them, okay, would you be willing to do away with the FDA? Oh, well, no. I mean, the drug companies right. would poison us. Would you be willing to do away with food inspectors at restaurants? Oh, no. The restaurants would poison us. I mean, as if that's how you make money in the restaurant business right. by poisoning your customers, right? Exactly. So on every particular issue, Americans seem to want big government. They, they as an abstraction, want small government. But then when you ask them about the specifics, they don't want to get rid of everything. And that's part of the, part of the challenge that those of us who believe in smaller government, those of us who want to limit government, uh, are challenged with is that Americans are supremely uneducated in what a market economy can do supremely uneducated on how bad government does what it does and uneducated. So they, they get what the government is doing. They get where their money's being spent, but overall they're okay with it, which, which I think is why we have the world in which we have, because we do live in a kind of a democratic world. Well, I, I think to that, I'm curious your thoughts here, because to me, that goes back to this issue of a couple of things. One, you have licensing boards, which kind of keep certain bars high. And yep. then you go to the courts and the courts are divided between civil and criminal, basically. Right. Um, and so you talk about the restaurant analogy or, or whatever people, well, 
first off, if the, I, I can't speak for people being pulled, but, but the thought of having to sue someone, like, oh, I got to get a lawyer, I got to pay the lawyer, I can't represent myself. This is the sure. big burden. What, what am I going to do? The courts are going to protect the big guy. The, 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 the breakdown at the legal system, I think, really deters Americans from thinking that when they're wronged, they can be righted. So you have the FDA, and when something goes wrong, well, the FDA goes and finds them. And maybe the victims get a little fee, but the FDA is actually the one making the money off of this. Yeah, but the FDA also also doesn't allow for all the drugs that could be really, yeah, really exactly. good for us. Yeah, right? exactly. And so we don't know that. That's invisible to us because it never happened. <laughs> never happened. Uh, but and it's so- but it's it's it is, but also it's a lack of imagination, right? Because it's not true that if we took away all the food inspectors from restaurants, it's not true that. You know, it would be so bad, we would be suing restaurants after restaurants. What actually would develop is a private means of certification. Call it, I don't know, Yelp or something. Imagine if Yelp (laughs) had their own food inspectors. And they went into restaurants and they actually, on a voluntary basis, they went into restaurants and they gave different restaurants a cleanliness rating, Mm -hmm. a hygiene rating as part of the Yelp process, right? As part of listing them on Yelp. Or maybe Google does it, or maybe who knows who will do it, right? So the point is that everything that government does that is not necessary for government to do, which is not related to force, not related to coercion, everything that government does can be done by the market more efficiently. Same with the FDA. Why not have five different FDAs, all private, all who make money when they allow for good drugs to be put into the market and all who lose money when they allow for bad drugs to be put in the market. And they don't, they don't have the rule of law, but they have recommendations. And who do they recommend the drugs to? Not us, because we don't know anything, but to our doctors. So our doctors get a, get a report every month from five different agencies that are competing with one another about all the new drugs and they rate them and they tell them what the side effects and all of that. So there are market mechanisms to solve all these things. You just need a little bit of imagination, which Americans don't have, but partially it's a lack of education. We don't even suggest to them that there are market alternatives to this. Every crisis, the immediate solution, doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican in power, the immediate solution is what? More government. More government, yeah. Well, and, and so if you think about, and I'm not familiar, I haven't looked at this case in a while, but uh, during the 90s, you had the Ford tires that were exploding. And my understanding is, that the Ford executives knew that the tires were faulty. Well, okay, in, in, a, in a more um, free market society, a more um, a different structure, those guys would go to jail probably for attempted murder. Um, and, 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 and so that would change. So you talk about protecting people, that would be the protection right there. It's like, it's not the tires exploded and we genu- genuinely thought they were good. There's lawsuits and stuff like that. But we, in this case, we know they're probably faulty and you put them out there. Well, guess what? Now you're on... Uh, you know, death or, or whatever and so we don't those are the types of ideas that when you say to people like oh yeah but then they go it'll never work because the legal system is too to your point there's a problem let's solve it with more regulation and it's like well there's actually very practical things that would really deter people from doing bad stuff if if you want to go try a experimental cancer drug and the the, the guy comes to you and says listen to our knowledge it's not going to kill you but it could it's experimental and you try it and you die. Okay, you were willing to risk that lot. You're, you're yeah, like, stage four cancer. Now, of course, if they put, you know, some kind of poison in there that kills you on purpose. That's different. These are not that's hard true. distinctions. To, these are hard distinctions to make. And it, it, it's, I think that you're, you're, you're dead on. You say people talk about wanting smaller government, but practically they don't. How do you convince people that these ideas are actually things that we can get to? So I think the primary thing to convince people, and this is why it's so hard and why it's so difficult, is not about economics. 
economics is relatively easy. Um, giving examples like this and doing that's easy. And I, you know, I do it all the time. It's funny. A good example of this is minimum wage, right? Every economist, every economist out there worth anything knows the minimum wage. If you raise it, you cause unemployment. And the more you raise it, the more unemployment you create. And you primarily create it among the people who are least educated, least able. So you, 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 you basically uh, price out of the workforce, the poorest of the poor. Everybody knows this, um, but you can explain the economics of it to, stu to students and they get it. On an exam, they will get, and then you ask them, are you for or against the minimum wage? And everybody's for it. Even though you just showed them economically because it makes them feel good, yeah. right? It, 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 is a, 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 it is adjusted to their moral beliefs. Their moral beliefs are, we have to help these people and this is one way to help them. And that's our moral duty. So, the argument has to be about morality. And this is why Rand is so important. This is why Ayn Rand is so important, because she's the only person um, in, the, in the 20th century to really challenge the prevailing morality that we should sacrifice to the poor, we should sacrifice the needy, that that is our priority in life. And she challenges that, and she promotes an, a, a morality that says, all of you, poor, rich, middle class, whatever, it doesn't matter, every single individual should strive to make their own life the best that it can be based on their own reason. And everybody has the capacity to reason, no matter how poor you are. And what you're doing by providing welfare, by providing minimum wage to people who um, is you're, you're telling them they're worthless. You're telling them they can't make it by themselves. You're, you're, you're basically putting them down and they should reject it. They should resent it. So what you have to teach is an individualistic morality, a morality of Personal responsibility, but personal responsibility, not like the conservatives talk about it, which is superficial. Deep down personal responsibility. You are responsible for your life. You're responsible for your own morality. You're responsible for being a good person. You're responsible for being successful. It doesn't help that people like Obama, you remember Obama's, I, I mean, his most famous speech, I think, and his most evil speech was the speech uh, where he said, you didn't build that, right? You didn't build that. In other words, nobody's responsible for anything. You know, we're all responsible. It takes a village, to use uh, Hillary Clinton's terms, right? Everything's collective. Individuals don't matter. They're not responsible. They're not, they don't create their own destiny. I believe you do as an individual. And until people are willing to accept that and then translate that into what it means in a marketplace, it means buyable wear, but also, that because buyable wear, we're going to create the mechanisms to protect buyers, but mechanisms that are voluntary, not mechanisms that are imposed from above by an authoritarian government. Yeah, yeah. And this one point on the minimum wage, I was at the Walmart here um, locally, and I walked in. And, you know, three years ago, we had, I don't know, live in a small town, two to four self-checkouts. Now we've got a ton of self-checkouts. And What's happened? Well, the labor force has shifted, of course, but also uh, the minimum wage and, and talks about paying people more. Like, you know what? We can just do self-checkout. And it's it's in, and so if people say, you know, people say, well, you know, these companies need to do this. Like, well, you're not going to make these large companies bend the need to what you want. They're going to do. So could Walmart pay people more? Sure. Actually, Walmart can pay more. It's the guy in the in the in the pop up burger trailer who can't afford to pay anybody more. And so you're really. But, but it's not true that Walmart could pay more. I mean, it, it, you know, Walmart has a particular profit margin. It's not like Walmart has this unbelievable profit margin. People put out the the billions of dollars Walmart makes, but 
those billions of dollars are return on capital for its investors. If Walmart doesn't give them a certain return on capital, which is pretty average, if you look at all businesses in the US, a Walmart doesn't make, uh, then they won't have capital. They can't grow. They can't employ people. They can't. So it's not that Walmart has this pile of capital over here that it can just do whatever the hell it wants. If it doesn't do the best that it can do with that pile of capital, its investors will bulk. And therefore, Walmart will get into trouble. But beyond that, if you can only, not you personally, but if somebody out there can only produce at seven bucks an hour, if the value I can extract from them in a sense as an employer Definitely. is seven bucks an hour, how am I going to pay them 10? I, I'm going to lose right. three bucks an hour on every one of these employees. And as they become more productive as employees, if they start at two bucks an hour, right? They start below they, they, you. As they become more productive, what happens? Their wages go up. Mm -hmm. Wages rise as productivity rises. And if the employee produces more, they get a higher payroll. That's what competitive markets in employment uh, do. So the solution, first of all, the minimum wage should be zero. There should be no minimum wage. And then wages would rise as people become more productive. How do they become more productive? As more capital is invested, more knowledge and more capital. Um, so the, as businesses thrive, their workers thrive. That has always been the case, and that continues to be the case. Yeah, just to clarify the Walmart point there, I'm saying that you see larger companies generally sure. push for raising the minimum wage because they can sure. pay you. They can pay above the minimum wage. They can raise prices. Right. Yeah, they can raise prices. They can raise uh, prices. The, the guy who's got the little snow cone shop or the burger can't pop raise prices. He can't. Yeah, he's the one that's really getting pounded. So you have the 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 worst of both worlds. Walmart raises prices and either keeps people on, and so that guy that we just talked about can't afford. You know, he, he's hurt, or they lay him off. They put in automated systems, <laughs> and still the guy's hurt. So it, 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 so I don't know. Um, just the, the last few minutes here, let's talk just a brief minute about propaganda and this stopping to think through these ideals because it should be quite apparent when you go see a Walmart that they put in all these new self-checkouts, which, you know, I kind of like sometimes. Sometimes I don't, depends on how many groceries I have. Um, yeah. And you should stop and go, huh, wait, where'd all the people go? And what caused that? And if you say, to your point, let's create a law Walmart is not going to get they're, they're going to do what they're going to do because they're talking to the senators and congressmen that are writing this law. It's the people locally you're hurt. How do you convey that message? Is it going back to your point? You've got a this deep individualism to um, just it's it, it really is this deep individualism because look, a, a free market economists have been trying to make these points forever. And you can talk economics all day and it doesn't seem to have any impact. We need to change the debate. But look, it's more than that. The fact is that forever we're being told the more machines we have, the fewer jobs they're going to be all the time. Even Jordan Peterson tells us this stuff, right? The more machines there are, the fewer jobs they're going to be. And yet the fact that there are machines now in Walmart and still we have the lowest unemployment rate ever. We have um, 11 million jobs going unfilled in the United States right now. It turns out that the more we embrace technology, the more jobs there are. And which is, counterintuitive maybe, but it is reality. And it's, it's one of those economic lessons that people don't want to accept because they see machine job gone. Yeah. But that person went to work for a better job because machines raise productivity and they raise, they raise the amount of capital in the economy and they raise investment. Yeah. I've never done the numbers, but 
So I was born in 85, right? So growing up um, in the 90s, you know, now it's now 37. Um, the people that I knew that had radio shows that had microphones like this were people on the radio station. So yep. I don't know who's making these microphones that me and you're talking about or, or we're using Zoom. I've got a nice Mac here. I've got two monitors. I've got road equipment, which I don't know when they come. All of this stuff came about from something. And so the, the what you'll hear them say is, well, and at some point there's an inflection point where we can't create more jobs. Like, I don't know. We can create a lot of stuff. No one ever in the 1990s when I was a kid would have said, hey, we're going to listen to two people talk over the Internet for 30 minutes to an hour about all sorts of things. He's a, yes. I mean, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, think of, of, of zoom and, and YouTube and all have created this opportunity for us, which is unbelievable, but uh, you know, something even simpler, uh, you know, in the nineties, I think how many nail salons were there in the world, you know, driving around your neighborhood, how many today, at least in California and many other places, every single Edward, strip mall has yeah. a nail salon, right? right? Why is that? Um, because, as we as society became richer, more of us have uh, outsourced the treatment of our nails to uh, nail salons, and uh, more and more Americans are getting their nails treated in nail salons. That's an improvement in our standard of living, yeah. and it's created hundreds of thousands of jobs mm -hmm. for jobs that don't require an education, that don't require you know high intelligence or whatever. And yet here they are. Now, do I know what the equivalent of nail salons is going to be a hundred years from now? No, yep. but all I know is as we become richer, our demands don't go down. As we become richer, our demands go up. We want more stuff, not less stuff. Yep. And as a consequence, we need more people to work. We need, well, you know, I'm looking forward to being a lot richer with a lot more technology to see what, what kind of world and, and how I can spoil myself in the future. Well, and that's just, we'll get your thoughts on this and let you go. That's one of my arguments about, um, you know, with energy background, energy the, the the faster we can give people around the world access to cheap energy. Now we want it to be Absolutely. somewhat clean. We can help it, but cheap. Yep. They will raise their GDP. And if you look at China, you go look at the smog. I was there in 2019, and someone that had not been in uh, Chinese national who had been in Scotland, I think, for a few years. Anyways, he's back in Beijing, and he told me this is the first time I've seen the sun in Beijing in my life. Yep. yep. You know what happened in China? Their GDP grew, Absolutely. and they said, you know what? We're not taking this anymore. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing that as wealth happens, you clean point, things up, you clean things up. And so yep. it's so but there's no way to make the wealth without making it dirty first. Right. And so it's not pollution is a consequence of the early stages of wealth creation. That's exactly you get right. to a certain level of wealth and you clean things up. That's right. And so it's not that it's not that we're saying that we want people to live in these terrible conditions. Oh, we don't want it. We're trying no. to get them out of it as fast as humanly possible. And this is the way to do it. And Absolutely. so. Um, and so it, it, it's just funny that when we have these debates, like, God, you know, GDP growth is tied to, you know, cleaning up the environment. And so yep. I, and I make this point. I say, hey, when I was growing up in the 90s, acid rain was in the textbooks. I don't yep. think I ever experienced it, heard of it. I think it was a thing in the past, but it's gone. <laughs> and so yep. what happened to acid rain? Well, we well, got wealthier. And, and look, all of these complaints against capitalism, this is true. Pollution is solved through private property and through wealth. Child labor, child labor goes away when parents get rich enough to send the kids to school and the kids don't have to work for their own living. Every country in the world eliminates child labor at a certain GDP per capita. So they reach a certain wealth. Now we can send our kids to school, no more children in factories. Then the government, then the government in order to virtue signal passes a law, but, but it's not the law that eliminates child labor. It's parents 
and, and the wealth that they, so getting rich makes life better. Uh, there's nothing that can replace uh, getting rich, GDP growth, uh, per capita, uh, in terms of improving quality of life and standard of living. And uh, to do that, we need free economies. We need to get the government out of the way. And if you don't believe us, just go read one history book. <laughs> just one. <laughs> on communist China, on, on Russia. Just go read one history book. That's all I, that's, that's all I challenge to you, and we can have the debate. Um, and, and so, okay, where do you want us to send people to? Thank you for this. I really enjoyed it. Where, uh, what do you want to plug, promote? Yeah, I mean, I, I have my own YouTube show, uh, Yaron Brooks Show. Just put my name into YouTube and it'll it'll appear. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. But if you really, what I really want people to do is go out and buy Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead. I want you to do the same thing, Ryan. Uh, I want you to read those books, powerful, life-changing books. I think you'll love them. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, they're thick, they're big books, but just get into it. You know, get past the first few pages. I think I think you'll stick to it. Um, so yeah, and and anything about Ayn Rand, you can find on AynRand.org, and Ayn Rand is spelled A-Y-N-R-A-N-D, and A-Y-N-R-A-N-D.org is where you can find just a ton of information about her, uh, and the Institute puts out a lot of educational content, a lot of material about everything that's going on in the world from the perspective of objectivism. Okay, I do have Atlas Shrugged on Audible. Uh, I haven't listened to it, but I will... Uh, try to get to it by the end of this year. So that's my that's my promise to you, sir. Excellent. Thank you for your time, and we'll link to all that. Okay, so you're sitting there going, Ryan, how do I get my voice heard on this podcast? The newsletter, warroommedia.com. Go there, sign up, drop a comment right there, and you'll get all the podcasts, any of the podcasts, even the old episodes are all on Substack now, so you can drop comments right there for people to see, or you can just sign up and get the podcast delivered right to your inbox when they come out. With that being said, we'll talk real soon.